Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Startup Stories, the weekly show from the Financial Times about the joys and challenges of starting a business. I'm Jonathan Moles. In our last episode in this series, I speak to Alex Klein, who co-founded the computer kit company Cano. Alex was a journalist and academic before trying his hand at entrepreneurship. He told me how the idea came about. I was at Cambridge, actually. I'd left journalism. The magazine I'd been working at, Newsweek, had sort of collapsed and shut down its, its print presence. And I thought I'd try and hack it as an academic. That didn't work out so well either, but I did meet the inventor of a little microcomputer called the Raspberry Pi. And I remember sitting across the table from the inventor, Eben, at a cafe in Cambridge and hearing him tell me about how this technology had been adopted in droves by hackers and hobbyists and makers, you know, to build robots and, and Bitcoin miners and all these arcane, complex inventions. But I remember him in our conversation wondering, why aren't more beginners into this? Why aren't more kids building their own computers, coding their own applications? It's possible now but for some reason, there's this huge barrier. And so the credit goes to my little cousin, Mika. I took the board, I showed it to him. I tried to get him excited about what we could build with it. You know, we could build robots, we could send it into space, we could send it under the ocean. And, and his challenge, he's like beautifully simplified every bit of jargon coming out of my mouth. He said, Alex, could we build a computer with this? And I was like, well, yeah. And what would that be like? And he said, it would have to be like Lego. I'd want it to be a simple and fun as Lego, so no one has to teach me. So that was that was a challenge. You know, there's that old adage from the mouths of babes. To see that, you know, in the eyes of this young person who's grown up in a world of these beautifully sealed post-Steve Jobs machines, these polished monoliths that obey our every command that are so easy a two-year-old can swipe across their surface and do things, to see that wide-eyed excitement about the idea of simply building a computer like Lego and coding it to make it do something new, that was like powerful to me. The, fir the first time I ever saw the inside of a computer, I've come up in this post Steve Jobs age as well. I had my perfect polished iBook, which I would use for torrenting movies and writing stories and making graphics. And it was smashed in front of my eyes by someone very near and dear to me. And it exploded in this eruption of components and light and sound. And, and that was the first time I'd ever seen the inside. And I remember cradling the, the hard drive in my hands and thinking there's this whole hidden world behind the surface of the screen that I'd never seen before. And, and there's so much magic to it. And when Mika was six years old, he saw it. And Cano, you know, the computer kit for all ages all over the world came from that shared sense of curiosity. How do you get something like that off the ground with very few resources? I think we were quite fortunate. I was at Cambridge trying to finish my dissertation. Initially, it was a sort of pet project. I bought the components myself off of Alibaba, started to write a little storybook, step by step, page by page, explaining how to put them together. 
I was introduced by my little cousin's dad, Saul, to this amazing Israeli man, a guy called Yonatan Raz Fridman, who eventually became my co-founder. He'd been working for the CEO of a company called Keter, which is one of the largest uh, injection molded plastics companies in the world. And we, we were kind of oddly placed. You know, he was a former military man. I was a former, you know, journalist and designer. And yet we both sort of felt immediately that in Mika's challenge, there was a simple box full of bits in a book, which you could make for one kid that would make him really happy. But in that challenge was a bigger idea. This notion that we've become all around the world estranged from our devices, that we tap and swipe and consume, but we have no idea how they work and we have no idea how to contribute to them. And only a small subsection of society has that power. So I was very lucky to meet Yonatan. Mika's dad, Saul, gave us enough of a loan to make 200 units of the kit for Mika because he too thought, hey, maybe some other kids would be interested in this. We put up a little website. They started to sell out on word of mouth and that momentum allowed us to attract some more people and eventually some more funding. So you had a loan to start with, but you then had to move on to getting equity backing. You moved into crowdfunding. How did that work? So the 200 units of this hand-folded box that we'd put together in a little flat in Belsize Park, I dropped out of Cambridge. I'd almost failed my dissertation. Jonathan and I moved in together. Our little flat became an assembly line. You know, we were ordering now components in bulk sitting in the living room, listening to music, watching Arrested Development, folding boxes, stuffing in cables, printing books at the color printers on Curzon Street, getting tons of paper cuts on our fingers. And uh, yeah, that was sort of the heady early days, you know, meeting in London with anyone who would hear us out on this idea of a new kind of computer company. And, you know, eventually we attracted enough like-minded people who were willing to work for (laughs) a low enough amount to go a step further. Where Uh, do you find those people? So, yeah, I think that what amazed me was the number of communities and networks online for different skill sets, different categories of interest, where I could just show up with a short, punchy phrase and and a sketch, and people would sort of accumulate around this concept, this build your own computer for anyone. And The first guy we found through a network like this was an amazing artist, one of the greatest artists I've had the privilege of working with, a guy called Tommy Saul. He was on a network called Dribble, which is a platform for design. He was living in the woods, not in the woods, in a town in the woods in North Sweden called Vesteros. He started turning what had been really scrappy illustrations from me into beautifully designed storybooks that would show anyone how to build the computer. Jonathan reached out to an amazing software developer on the PlayStation 4 team called Alejandro Simon, Spanish guy. He came and was our first sort of technical hire. And it kind of grew from there until, you know, we had seven people and we had something that, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, Jonathan, we felt we were ready to show to the crowd. How do you build that sort of excitement among people to get involved with something that's unknown? I think what was interesting is that, you know, at the time there was a lot of buzz and attention on Silicon Valley and huge private company valuations and the notion of creating a unicorn and the Instagram acquisition and this massive influx of funding into new venture and tech and social media. But for me at the time, I thought a lot of the projects lacked ambition. I thought that a lot of the apps and services 
that were coming to life all looked the same, all acted the same, all played the same attention commoditizing game on a smartphone screen. And so one thing we would say when we went out to meet with people who we were interested in recruiting is we would say, look, you're not building an add-on for Gmail that's going to help you sort through your inbox. You're not building an app that's going to attach itself to Facebook in the hopes of being acquired by one of the big tech platforms after a few years. We're building a new computer company. We're building an end-to-end business whose aspiration is to be one of the canonical brands of the 21st century, to actually change the way people relate to computing in their lives. And I think people were like, oh, wow, that's ambitious. And I think people like that. People like this sense that technology has taken us to a point where we have to reconfigure our relationship with it and that new ways of doing business are going to emerge as well as new products that take advantage of people's kind of natural curiosity about how this stuff works. You've also been able to use that sort of crowd to be able to find ideas for the business itself. Yeah, so the crowdfunding component has always been important to our development. So after we'd created this initial kit in our flat, we started to work on a new design. And this process was extremely iterative, and it always depended on feedback from people outside. I spent a lot of time trundling a big orange suitcase from school to school. We went to a free university in Johannesburg where people had started using early versions of the Raspberry Pi and started to show them the new design, which had more uh, simple plugging elements, a more beautifully illustrated book, software that would let you code music and art and Minecraft. We would show up and ask simple questions to people of any age. And wherever we went, people would have this same reaction to the notion of making their own computer. We'd ask them, who here has seen the inside of a computer before? And no hands would go up. Who here thinks they could make a computer? And no hands go up. And who here would like to try? And every hand goes up. And after every session, we'd ask the same questions again. We'd say, what was your favorite part? What was your least favorite part? And what was confusing? And I would just fill notebooks and notebooks, dozens of notebooks with the answers. And I remember one young man named Khalid in an early school workshop in London. I think he was nine at the time. And, you know, we asked what his favorite part was. And he said, well, you know, adults, they think we're incapable because we're so young. But today we made a computer and we brought it to life. And that makes us super children. And so those quotes, those insights into the curves on the corners of the components, the flow of the steps on screen, all fed into our original crowdfunding campaign. So we took the kit to Kickstarter, hoping to raise $100,000 in 30 days. We thought we'd attract, you know, 1,000 more customers. What we got instead, you know, we got the 1,000 customers in 13 hours. By the end of that month, we had 13 times as many. We'd raised $1.5 million. And what we got was more than customers. We got contributors, people who translated the words in our books into 50 different languages, from like Afrikaans to Zulu. It was extraordinary to see that people weren't just pledging money to buy a product, but actually to become part of this idea. What do you think it was that drew them in? Was it about this big vision? I think if we'd come and we'd articulated just a big vision, people would have had trouble finding a way in. And I think it was the quotes from those workshops, the telegraphic nature of the design of this kit, and the open source nature of the software as well, 
which made people feel they could contribute. So you had people in South Africa attaching the early prototypes to TVs and making smart TVs. You had a girl in Kosovo attach Kano to a solar panel and automate its position to track the sun across the sky. Your question's really interesting. What was it about that original crowdfunding campaign, which ended up becoming the most crowdfunded learning product ever? What was it about it that attracted so much attention and so much of a desire on behalf of the community to contribute? I think one important aspect was that we wrote the campaign almost like a letter to a friend. The headers of each section were questions, and this is a format that's been replicated on Kickstarter thousands of times since. You know, it was very simple. What's Cano? How does it work? What can I build with it? Why does it matter? When will I get it? How can I help? You know, all of these leading questions, and I think readers felt in that real curiosity on the part of the company, an openness that technology companies don't always express. And, you know, our video for the Kickstarter campaign, nowadays, if you do a campaign, you'll see all these slickly produced, almost home shopping network style films. We showed up at 8am in a kid's playground in Hackney. And over the course of a couple hours, we improvised the scripts, you know, we were playing on the monkey bars, sliding down slides, Jonathan and I with our filmmaker, Leo, kind of just rapping about the need for a simple computer kit that anyone can build. And I don't know, there was an amateurishness in a way and a misfit personality to the brand that made people interested in putting a bit of themselves into it. You get these ideas coming in. Some of them get turned into product ideas for you. How do you make that decision? And can you give me an example? Yeah, I mean, it's, a bit of it is intuition and a bit of it is good old-fashioned democracy. With the original Kickstarter campaign, the design, when we presented it to the world, was unfinished. There were bits out of place. There were decisions we had yet to make. One big decision, the case for the computer, would be built step by step by the hands of the person who bought it. And so, you know, we had to get the design just right and we were sweating over the details of the clipping mechanism and the injection mold. And we came up with a question and Jonathan and I, as we were wont to do, had a disagreement on the color of the case. We were debating and arguing. I think I wanted the sides of the case to be white and the top to be transparent. And he wanted the opposite. Uh, he wanted the top to be white and the sides to be transparent. And we're going back and forth and philosophizing and asking people. And eventually we just said, okay, let's ask the backers. Let's send out another letter. And what we were doing at that time, literally every two weeks, was sending a letter to the whole community of 13,000 people of raw, unfiltered updates on our process, what was going on in the factories, what was sparking out, what was blowing up, what bugs were appearing in the code. And so we asked them to vote. We took a picture of the two options, option A, option B. The note was titled, A Tale of Two Cases. And I wrote it. I asked people to leave their vote in the comments, A or B. We then received over 900 comments. I think it was in the first day. And the majority of those comments said neither. They said, you guys don't have it right. It's not option A, not option B. You need to make the case entirely transparent because that's the point of this product, we thought, to let people see inside, to demystify how computing works, to stop obscuring and covering up the magic of what happens inside our devices. And we were just like, oh, duh, you know, that should have been our first protocol. And to this date, the design of every Cano physical product takes a cue from this the PCBs and the circuit boards are allowed to show off their stuff, show what they're made of, and the cases are transparent even though you build it yourself. 
Cano is now selling through retailers in how many countries? So we've shipped to 86 countries to date. Our shipments primarily go to the US and the UK, although we also ship to Europe and to you know a few countries in Asia and Africa. But we've expanded into North American retail in a big way. So we're in over 4,500 stores. And you're based in East London? Yes. With a team of... Close to 70 people now. So how do you keep that group motivated? Presumably that energy is more difficult to maintain. Yeah, I think you're right. It does become more difficult. People who are early adopters feel that they're part of a secret club and they know that they're the first to join a movement that hopes to challenge the status quo, that hopes to defy sealed screens, much like the original PC revolution, which struck back at the corporate IBM machines, wants to upend this post-Steve Jobs consumption-oriented computing paradigm. And so the There's that ragged band of misfits flavor that you can definitely lose as you grow if you're not careful. I mean, now we're available in every Target. Uh, We're available in every Best Buy. We're available at Walmart. You know, we're moving into the mainstream. And I think that it presents a risk to that spirit that brought the original community together. So one way we've tried to make sure that that stays strong is architecting the product in such a way that every creation, every um, coded piece of music or art or game or application that a young person or a beginner makes on Kano is automatically uploaded to an online community called Kano World, where all the code is open for other people to see and remix and change. So that's where we surface a lot of ideas. That's where people post projects. You know, we had a family in Oklahoma. They took their original Kano computer kit, slapped a camera to the top of it, wrote a little Python script that would make the camera snap, I think every day at a certain time, and put it next to a flower bed. And the camera attached to the Cano computer kit captured this flower blooming over time, this incredible time lapse made possible through the interaction of our simple hardware and simple software with their ingenuity. That idea became a product that we developed and are bringing into mass retail called the camera kit which takes some of those cues, turns it into a simple device for anyone to build and code their own camera and shape imagery with their own ingenuity. Crowdfunding proved a great source of ideas and inspiration for Cano, not just for funding. I asked Nelson Phillips of Imperial College Business School to comment. What they did is very interesting. They not only used it to raise money, they used it as a way to test their ideas, to get input from a diverse group of people who are interested in what they're doing. And I think you see a lot of companies on crowdsourcing platforms who are missing an opportunity to actually use the connections that they're able to generate through the crowdfunding platforms to crowdsource information, opinion, ideas. Uh, And the companies that are more successful tend to do that. Companies that are going to be better at connecting with an audience do that. You do see lots of companies who miss that opportunity, who just raise money on these or try to raise money. But the companies that are doing really interesting things and that really want to build something for the market, this is a fantastic source of information that you couldn't buy. Because funding is not just about the money. It's about the people you're drawing in. I think that getting funding is 
important for companies, but what comes along with lots of forms of funding. I mean, angel investing is similar. Angels don't just invest. They bring ideas and support companies in lots of other ways. Crowdfunding, when it works well, it's not just about the money. It's about a connection with a group of potential consumers, people who are excited about your product. I mean, the companies where their ideas are oversubscribed, that's a great signal that this is a really interesting idea. And then that's a great resource to connect with if you do it right. And uh, Kano is a great example of how to do that right and maximize the value because there's lots of money around, but money that comes with loyalty, ideas, enthusiasm, excitement, that's really valuable money. So what is it that these smart crowdfunders are doing is it the way they're pitching themselves? They're pitching themselves, but they're also asking questions. And then they're connecting with the people who are reacting positively to their idea, and they're going back and continuing to communicate with them. I don't know if you've ever invested through a crowdfunding website. When you invest, your contact details go to the people you're investing in. They communicate with you. And the better ones, they don't just tell you, they ask you. One of the organizations that I crowdfunded is just going into production with their product and they're telling me, but they didn't ever ask me anything. I would have been happy to give my opinion if they'd asked me about color, shape, functionality. They didn't. So I think that company missed the opportunity that Cano saw and really did a good job of accessing. So, you know, how should we shape this product? You know, it's better to do it rather than launch it on the market, see the reaction and shape the product, ask people and then shape the product first. I asked Alex what advice he would give to himself if he was starting out again now. We shipped our first mass production in September of 2014. So it's not that long ago, actually. And, you know, since then, we've shipped over a quarter million units. So it's gone very quickly. And, you know, I, I try always to look forward and to think about what happens next. I think if I could give myself some advice, I'd tell myself to maybe at times take a breath, reflect and enjoy, you know, there's always this perennial dissatisfaction, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs wouldn't talk about because you really do have to have that unrelenting optimism and positivity. But I think inside you, you always know how it could be better. You always feel the mistakes on a really core level. And I think more recently, I've realized that putting the self-identification with mistakes to the side and learning from them dispassionately and objectively allows you to accelerate forward faster. I think early in my journey on this road, I was more likely to, to spin out a little bit when things went wrong. Do you get help with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I've got to throw a lot of credit to my co-founder, Jonathan, our excellent board of supporters, advisors. But I think you also get help from family, from mentors. And I think you know, one of our core values is keep it real. Don't cover it up if you have a feeling or a concern. We stay professional. We focus on what we can do practically. But we also work through issues together. And I think it's a culture where people feel comfortable expressing what's on their mind. And at the end of the day, that allows you to push harder and go further and avoid burnout. Because what we're trying to do here is really massive and has not been attempted at this kind of scale in decades to build a new computer company for the next generation. So I get help through people, but I also try and look to the future as often as I can. This is our last episode in the current series, but you can catch up on previous episodes on iTunes, Acast, or whichever podcast platform you use, or our special page, ft.com forward slash startup. We'll be back with another series later this year, 
and I hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, you can find more stories on entrepreneurship on ft.com. And do take a look at our latest subscriber offer, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer 50. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.